Good morning, everyone. So we are about to enter into chapter 10 of the book of Proverbs. If you need a Bible, we have a few off to the side here, those blue books. They are the NIV, and we're, I'm reading from the ESV, so there will be a little translation difference, but something is better than nothing. If you're joining us for the first time, you've picked the perfect Sunday to do so. Because we are at one of the major transition points and new beginning points in the book of Proverbs. The first nine chapters, as we have seen, form a cohesive unit. And while we see Christ at the center of all nine of these chapters, of course, he himself says that the Old Testament scriptures are about him, we've also seen major sub-themes develop. For example, the way of righteousness contrasted with the way of wickedness. So two different paths, two different journeys, two different roads. Very similar to, as our Lord says, that narrow path that leads to life and that broad path that leads to destruction. We've also then seen the two women. We've seen the woman who is finally given the name Folly, and the woman wisdom. And we've seen how they both call out for your attention. And you will have one or the other, wisdom or folly. And the way of wisdom leads to life. Her household is life. Her household is very much reminiscent of the church, right along with the bread and wine foreshadowing the Lord's Supper. While the household of folly is already hell, but those who are there just don't know it yet. Okay, so with these rather climactic and major themes in mind, then we transition into chapter 10, and for chapters 10 through 22, these will be a lot more familiar to you in regard to what you think of when you think of the Proverbs, because we're going to see lists that are only loosely, thematically uh, grouped together. And we're going to see and reflect on the way these are true and have a spiritual truth, the way these have an earthly truth. So we'll be examining both of those facets as we go along. Before we get into the new material then at chapter 10, let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, by way of further introduction, chapter 10, verse 1, I want to try to set a kind of tone, set some parameters for us as we look at these Proverbs. So if you will look with me at the first proverb there listed, of course, after the introduction, the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Now, at first read, that's straightforward and easy, isn't it? And we could simply move on, having grasped what is obvious to the eye and obvious to the mind. And I think that that's a fine way to read the Proverbs. There is another way, and so let's put that, we just read it, it makes sense on a surface level, we could move right along. Let's put that at one end of the spectrum, and then let's put at the other end of the spectrum this kind of approach, okay? I'll show and illustrate that. And then you'll see how as we progress along, we're going to be somewhere between those two. Maybe not always going as thoroughly as we like, but then again, we could dwell on any number of these verses for a very long time. So what would be on the other end of the spectrum? A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. In the first place, we see an antithetical parallel 
So with that conjunction, but, we see a reversal of the first themes. Who is this wise son? Well, I tipped my hat in the beginning. It would be wise of us to start with the wise son being Jesus. Indeed, Paul says we are called to be imitators of Christ. He considers himself to be an imitator. And our Lord himself teaches this very thing. He says when a methetes, a disciple, is fully trained, he will be like the didaskalos, like the teacher. So our goal as disciples is, is to be ever more fully trained until we think like our Lord, speak like our Lord, act like our Lord. So in seeing this wise son as Jesus, we can then also see how it's true for us. But the wise son makes a glad father. We can think of how Christ makes our heavenly father glad. But a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. In the same spiritual way, we could reflect perhaps on the mother being the church and a foolish son being one who is born of the mother and yet does not conduct himself in the way of the wise son, in the way of Christ, and thus becomes a sorrow to his mother. All right, so we can reflect on it in terms of these spiritual dynamics, still kind of with a one-to-one equivalency. Of course, we can make it entirely practical as well, can't we? That if you have a wise son, if you're a father, or you can imagine yourself as a father, if you have a wise son, that makes you glad. Whereas if you have a foolish son, if you're a mother, you can imagine yourself as a mother, it makes you sorrowful. What else might we conclude from a proverb like this? Well, we could take from it a principle that wisdom and foolishness are not only good or bad for the individual who is either wise or foolish. That is to say, if you're wise, it's not just for your sake, but also for whose sake? Your father. It's for his sake. So to be wise then is more than just about you being wise and certainly isn't there for you to pat yourself on the back about how wise you are. That, in fact, would be foolishness. But to be wise then actually has very positive benefit on those around you. And the same is true for being foolish. To be foolish has negative consequence, but not just for yourself, also for those around you. Now, who determines what is wise and what is foolish? Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, here in Proverbs, the entire question of wisdom and foolishness is grounded and centered in God and in his word. What God says is wise. That which is contrary to what God says is foolish. So then we can see how this reflects with our spiritual fathers and mothers in the church as well as our physical, earthly fathers and mothers. Wisdom and foolishness have consequences that go far beyond the individual. And if they affect family members, then they also affect society. All of culture. This is one of the reasons why the most important place in the entire universe is your dining room table. That is where change is actually affected. That is where the word of God sounds forth on a daily basis, making wise those who hear it, so that every family unit goes out into the world and makes its impact. It may appear to us as though politics and the big news items and big spokespersons, the media, celebrities, scientists and experts, as if they're the ones pushing everything. 
Where did they learn what they learned? And with everything having its source, the source of true and objective wisdom is the word of God. And that is given as the head of the household should bestow it to his family and teach it to them. So again, the dining room table is the place of utmost importance in the cosmos. And isn't that just like God? To work in the small, insignificant, despised ways in order to affect his strength. Okay, let's pause there. Now, I think that we could continue on with just this one proverb for probably another half hour at least. But I'll stop there and I'll try to just show part of the challenge of studying the Proverbs is you can take them superficially or you can delve into them more deeply. And I'm simply going to just do the best I can. But if you want to delve into something more deeply, let me know. If you have an insight that's very important, let me know. In some cases, I'm simply going to have to skip over it lest we be in the book of Proverbs for the next four or five decades. But I hope to, to illustrate by that treatment of this verse the way in which uh, the church has long considered the reading of Scripture as a kind of spiritual eating. Have you ever seen an alligator eat? Surely you've seen a video of it. It eats like my son. Just gulp and it's gone, it's down. But human beings, we don't eat that way. We eat by, yeah, first we select. <laughs> and we have, we have on our plate a kind of selection, and already we're being artists by just simply what we select to put in our mouth when. And then as we put it into our mouth, we chew it, we roll it around on our tongue. That is, if we like it. I mean, if you don't like it, yeah, I know this because I've got young kids. So plug your nose, have the milk ready, put the broccoli in, chew quickly, drink the milk. I know it sounds gross, but it gets it down. So, all right. But we as adults, rather, chew, roll it around on your tongue, savor it. Your nose is highly involved. That's why uh, your sense of smell is highly involved. That's why plugging your nose deadens the taste, right? So you chew, you savor, um, you roll around, you appreciate not just the taste and the smell, but also the texture, all right? And then you swallow, and you may be done with the food, but the food's not done with you. Down it goes where it is then digested, and in fact becomes, or at least the nutritious elements, become part of you. So this becomes then the motif for spiritual eating. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So this idea of uh, reading, marking, learning, inwardly digesting. That language reflects in our collect prayers and the divine service from time to time. But that's the way in which the scriptures are ultimately to be read. So you kind of chew and taste and dissect and roll around and uh, roll it around in your mind. And it's okay to get things wrong. You just correct it. It's okay to see if you're meditating it. And oops, that led to a dead end or a dangerous alley. Let's backtrack. And uh, that, is, that is a very fruitful way of reading and thinking about the scriptures in general the Proverbs in particular. Okay, so a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. We can see the, con the primary contrast then between the wise and the foolish. On to the next one. Okay, and a little more quickly. Verse 2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit but righteousness delivers from death. Let's take the first half of the proverb. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. In what sense do you take that? 
You're all too innocent. You've never, you've never gotten any ill-gotten gains, so you don't know. Yeah, please. Well, it seems to me that they do profit. I mean, they're sure. gains, right? They're treasures. Yeah. So you, they do profit. I mean, if you, if you take it strictly at the most superficial level, mm-hmm. ill-gotten gains are what? Gains. Exactly right. Okay. right. Yeah, so already we acknowledge a counterintuitive or a more-than-meets-the-eye element to this proverb because it seems like cheaters do prosper. Contrary to what your mother told you. But in what way might that material gain actually not be a gain at all? Exactly. Can bring sorrow, can be more than you can handle, can fill you with a sense of guilt. Maybe you got it illegally, you're going to get it taken away from you, so you're sitting there in guilt and fear. Um, Your ill-gotten gains, Luther in the large catechism says, um, you may go ahead and get it, but God's going to see to it that you have no joy whatsoever. So even though it might like be in the bank account or be in your house, you won't derive any joy from it. Okay, and then what else? What might be, uh, if we sort of shift out of the earthly dimension, what might be another reason that you would say treasure gained by wickedness does not profit? The yeah, yeah, breaks the um, depending on how you number him. Yeah, the the seventh in the Lutheran Catechism. I, d- I didn't hear who said it, but uh, it might be the eighth in another tradition. That's uh, yeah. So thou shalt not steal, which then means there's going to be a heavenly consequence. So even though it you feel or think that you in fact got away with it, did you? No. It is not going to profit because you are going to have that removed from you in death and you are going to pay the consequence for that. The Lord will see to it. Okay. So then, the treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. But righteousness delivers from death. So righteousness has a superficial, well, I don't know, it's not superficial. The immediate contrast is wickedness and righteousness. But I think what's interesting about this construction is the the treasures gained do not profit. And then righteousness does profit. Righteousness delivers from death. Okay, so in a sense, here you have mammon versus the Lord, earthly treasures versus heavenly treasures. The word of the Lord and the heavenly treasures, righteousness. But treasures gained in this way through wickedness don't profit, but by contrast, righteousness gained does profit. In fact, in a way that transcends all earthly wealth, Because righteousness, unlike earthly wealth, can deliver from death, does deliver from death. So if this is a righteousness that delivers from death, flesh out that content of righteousness for me. Trust in. Trust in Jesus. Trust in the Lord. That's the essence here of righteousness. And of course, all the fruit that flow from that. All right, moving on to three. Stop me if there's something you want to talk about. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. So again, the obvious contrast is righteous and wicked. You have this kind of beautiful poetic structure. We have wickedness, righteousness, righteous, wicked in verses two and three. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. So that's reminiscent of our Lord saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these other things will be added unto you. It's a general truth. There may well be exceptions to that. But it's a general truth. But he thwarts the craving of the wicked. 
What's the craving of the wicked in this context? Yeah, just stuff, more and more and more. So here, the second half actually then helps us better understand the first half. So as we contrast then the craving of the wicked, which is just for more and more earthly stuff, as we backtrack and consider that the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, we might also reflect that we should hunger and thirst for righteousness, according to that beatitude, that is for the things of God. So that's a way in which now we have an example where the first line, we have a certain understanding. The second line comes along and we have now a deeper, more nuanced understanding of that first line we just read. So this is very much in the way of Hebrew parallelism. And of course, you're familiar with this kind of thing from the Psalms. All right, at verse 4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. What are the two contrasts in terms of the character of the, the wise son or the foolish son? What do you see? What do you think? Yeah, slack and diligence are particularly what we're looking for. So the first case, a slack hand causes poverty. That seems to be laziness. It may also, in a secondary sense, reflect on you reap what you sow and what you give will be given unto you. I don't think that that's precluded here. But a slack hand in the primary sense seems to be a lazy hand because we contrast that with the second Clause, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Okay, so the diligent, that is one who follows through, one who works hard, as opposed to the slack, maybe starts but doesn't finish. So two different hands, one slack, one diligent, two different outcomes, poverty or riches. And we can see how that's true in an earthly sense. I mean, Generally speaking, there are always exceptions to the Proverbs. Okay? So you can you know, always find exceptions. But generally speaking, hard work pays off. Laziness doesn't. And then as we reflect on this in terms of the spiritual reality, now we know that we're justified by grace through faith apart from works, But there is a profound difference between the works of one and the works of another. We would find great encouragement here to be diligent, ready for every good work, and diligent to do them that we might store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Which, of all the treasures in heaven, among the foremost will be those people we see whom we helped along the way down here. That's part and parcel of the great treasures of heaven, is to go and see those in heavenly glory whom we knew, whom we helped and served down here. I can think, I mean, aside from God himself and that whole category, that vertical category, if you will, of of treasures of heaven, I can think of no greater horizontal treasure than seeing saints that uh, I knew and uh, that I served. And that's how we should all feel and be encouraged. Okay, so a slack hand and a diligent hand, two different outcomes. Again, please feel free to interrupt. Otherwise, we're going to hit verse 5, and we'll bring to a conclusion this section. So he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, But he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. As I was researching this, again, I'm agriculturally challenged, as probably most of you are here. I think food just materializes in Costco, doesn't it? (laughs) But I had to look and see if there's any difference between summer and harvest, or if that's some kind of key point. It doesn't seem to be. What seems to here is that these are synonymous with one another. Summer, particularly the late summer, is the time of harvest. So the real point of contrast then 
is what? Gathering and sleeping. Which feels better? (laughs) Yeah, definitely sleeping. Yeah, isn't that strange? When you're a little kid, you never want to go to bed. When you're an adult, there's pretty much no better feeling than flopping into bed and feeling those covers come up. Check it out. All right, so yes, sleep uh, feels good. Gathering feels bad. It's hot, it's sweaty, you're out there, you're working. He who gathers in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Now again, in terms of just practicality, this isn't saying anything that dozens of other Proverbs say, that, hey, early bird gets the worm, busy bee gets the honey, and all of that's very wise and very good for us to meditate on, especially those of us who might be challenged in this regard. But again, to view this through a spiritual lens, we can still grasp yet other things. What is the time of the summer? What is the time of the harvest, spiritually speaking? Now. Okay? So we pray that the Lord would send workers, laborers into his harvest. The fields are white for harvest. We know that now is the time for labors. So a key part of understanding this proverb in a spiritual sense is to understand that now is the time for work. There is going to be another time for rest. So again, I'm a little bit agriculturally challenged here, but I do know that after the harvest comes a time of rest. What a mistake to rest when you're supposed to be harvesting Because then when you should be resting after the harvest, instead you're going to be scrambling around, but there's not going to be anything to harvest, and so your efforts are going to be less profitable and or futile. So then ultimately, this is a kind of proverb that says, mark the time and understand what time you're in. Now is the time of harvest. Now is the time of labor. And what happens when the Lord calls us home? Rest. So this is great encouragement that, look, rest is coming. Now is the time to labor. A very similar theology, now, this life, is Good Friday. Don't expect a whole lot of Easter. But Easter's coming. And that Easter is going to put away Good Friday the way the birth of a child puts away the labors of the mom. She's going to forget it for the joy that has come. And so also, as we move from Good Friday to eternal Easter, as we move from the time of harvest to the time of rest, we need to mark and note the time, and that will inspire us then to get after it while we're down here. I'm paraphrasing Luther, but Luther says, there's never been a single soul that gets up to heaven and goes, you know, I wish I did less. You know, I wish I risked less. You know, I I wish I was a little bit more timid in proclaiming the word of God. I wish I had slacked off a little bit more and engaged in a few more sins. No one ever says that. So this gives us that view that the time is short, and once you're in heaven, it is, in a sense, too late to work, too late to sacrifice, Too late to serve those around you. This brief time is that time. So use it wisely. And I think this is also one of the great, maybe psychological angles of it, is I can't tell you how many times as a a pastor, I hear people say, I'm so burnt out, I'm so threadbare, I've got so little time. And I want to say, I don't always say this, but I want to say, good You're doing it right. The goal is not to leave something in the tank. (laughs) The goal is to sacrifice yourself, to make yourself a daily sacrifice. The goal is to go threadbare. 
The goal is to run it into the red until the engine bursts. Now, I am not saying that you shouldn't be a good steward of your health and well-being. Okay, please do that. That's part and parcel of being an effective laborer. But understand that this part of our existence is toil. So don't go looking for a whole ton of rest. Christ is in our midst. Come to me, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we have that perpetual rest in Christ Jesus, even as we're laboring. But the time is coming in which we will set aside our labors. And we will do so eternally. So you can consider it from that sense too. Like, it's a brief night of working and a whole eternity of joy and rest. I mean, again, these things inspire and impel us to get after it. And I think that they can give us great hope, too, as we look at the afflictions and the crosses and the sorrows. We can realize that these labors are temporary. And that in and of itself, you go, I don't know, that's the rest of my life. That is really a short time. (laughs) That is really temporary. You had to labor in a difficult marriage for decades. That's the blink of an eye. You had to labor with your children, trying to plant and re-implant the faith in them. It's for the blink of an eye. So again, I think that this is a fruitful way that we can meditate on this idea spiritually of gathering when it's gathering time and not sleeping when it's gathering time. We see reflected here also this theme, um, particularly in the, in the very last two words of verse 5, that he who sleeps in the harvest is a son who brings shame. So again, leaving off with that thought that our deeds are not just about us. What I do is not just about me, but it either brings joy or shame into the hearts of others. Okay, these first five verses form a very soft unit, but that unit has to do primarily with righteousness and the way of practicing righteousness. As we transition into verse 6, and this will take us through verse 23, we're going to see that with one minor section as the exception, we have a section here that is largely based around the mouth. Let me pause there and see if you have any reflections on verses 1 through 5. Otherwise, we're going to jump into verses 6 through 23 and some of these proverbs that have to do with our mouths. All right. Seeing none, everyone is shy today or there wasn't enough coffee. I don't know. Off to verse 6 then. Blessings are on the head of the righteous. But the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. So we have the head and the mouth contrasted, but that's not a major one. Rather, it is the righteous and the wicked, once again, that emerges. Blessings are on the head of the righteous. What do you think of when you think of Christ as the righteous one? What's upon his head? Crown of thorns. Let's keep that thought in mind. That's exactly right. What other thing goes on his head? Now, he doesn't wear it. It has to do with the very name Christ or Christos or anointed one. What goes upon his head? He's the king and he is uh, not anointed as the kings of old with oil, but anointed with... He comes up out of the waters. The Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove and he is there anointed as the Messiah, as the Anointed One, the Christ. So, I think we have, and of course when he comes again, he's crowned in glory. No doubt about that. So, 
I think we have upon the head of the righteous one ostensible blessing, the Holy Spirit poured out, and then a different kind of blessing. A blessing that would appear to earthly logic to be not a blessing but a curse, a crown of thorns. Now when blessing is blessing, that's straightforward and needs no explanation. But what if we reflect on the blessing of the crown of thorns upon the head of the righteous one? That changes our whole perspective on what is a blessing and what is a curse. Because if it comes from God, then whether we would say it's a blessing or a curse, whether we'd say it's a blessing or an affliction, we know that it's nonetheless a blessing. So you can think of the crown of thorns. Why is Christ crowned with thorns? I'm sorry? He's, he, yeah, he's uh, mocked and ridiculed and scorned by the world and the rulers of the world. And yet he endures that shame for what purpose? For us. I mean, that's the shortest way to put it. He's crowned with those thorns in order to remove the curse that caused thorns to grow in the first place. So when God created the garden, there were no thorns or thistles. In order for those thorns and thistles, that curse to be removed, that curse must be born. The thorns and thistles are wrapped around his head. And so the king of creation is crowned with thorns that he might restore creation, lifting the curse, bringing a new heavens and a new earth. And we as a new human race who have believed in him, born to exist and live there for all eternity. Okay, so is that crown of thorns unto the righteous one, our Lord Jesus Christ, a blessing or a curse? Both, sure, I accept that, but the curse is certainly the minor point, isn't it? The overarching point is that it's a blessing. In fact, through the curse and by bearing the curse comes the blessing. That there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And indeed, to him, every single knee shall bow and every tongue confess. So this is, um, from a worldly standpoint, a curse. From a heavenly standpoint, a blessing. And now we're poised to see that the afflictions that God afflicts us with, the crosses that God causes us to bear, are for an everlasting weight of glory. You may not know the answer this side of heaven, Who knows? You may not even know the answer on that side of heaven. But you will know that what God laid upon you had a profound purpose and that he worked that purpose not only for your good, but for the good of all who have loved him. So to be conformed into the image of Jesus is the highest honor a human being can have. To be conformed into the image of the everlasting Son of the Father. And this is what Christ is calling his disciples to. That's why he says, whoever would follow me must take up his cross. Now you can see how satanic is a complete superficial tangent your best life now theology is. I mean, it strips and denudes and reverses everything. I think maybe most pernicious of all, it utterly blinds you to the deepest realities of the Christian life, the deepest realities of what it means to be conformed into the image of the crucified one that we might be conformed into the image of the resurrected one. Okay, I see a hand pop up. Pastor, I think think you tend to think of this term, blessing, as being something that feels good. 
Mm, yeah, sure. And I don't know that necessarily what feels good to a sinner really is going to always be a blessing. <laughs> right. Of course. Right? Of course. So we can look at the at the crown of thorns and we can say, well, it's a blessing. It doesn't seem that way to us. But what would we know? Yeah. About it. Yeah. You know, the only thing we can go by is what whether God tells us is a blessing. Is He's the only one in a position to know what's good. Yeah, ultimately, ultimately, and this is going to be a theme that we see emerge and re-emerge in Proverbs, is that in hindsight, and again, generally speaking, but in hindsight, we will give thanks to God for those things we despised in this life more than we will give thanks to God for the things we rejoiced in in this life. That has to do even with this theme that to be, and we're going to see this again, even just in short order, but to be wise, a la Proverbs, is to recognize you're a fool and, re- and receive the, the sting of those rebukes and the sting of that lesson. Nobody likes to be told he's wrong or he's a fool. Nobody likes to be told, hey, you've got it backward. So it hurts to become wise. And it hurts to be conformed into the image of Jesus. So, you know, when you wake up in the morning, exactly how much do you want to suffer in the day ahead? Because I can tell you the answer for me, it's zero. And in fact, I spend a great deal of energy in my life trying to make sure that I don't suffer and that the people around me don't suffer. But alas, the suffering comes anyway. And part of what we have to realize as Christians is that the suffering comes from God too. And that the suffering, no matter how much we might try to prevent it or stop it or minimize it, when it continues to come, we can still say, this is my role and vocation to oppose this, but it is obviously pleasing the Lord that it comes anyway. And so in that, then, there is a kind of lesson to be learned. And again, um, from a heavenly perspective, we will thank him more for what was difficult and painful than we will for what was good and easy. Now, all of the above are blessings, but when he gives what is good and easy, maybe there's no growth, maybe there's minimal growth. When he gives what is difficult and hard, that's when there's tons of growth. And then again, we're, we're so focused on the individual. I mean, I am too, just our American mindset. But it's true broader. When life is easy and everything's going swimmingly for you and has gone swimmingly for you, you're actually of very limited value to people who are suffering. But when you have been through the ringer and are going through the ringer, you are suddenly of profound value to people who are suffering. So there is a deep sense in which we are afflicted so that we can comfort others who are afflicted with that same comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. Remember St. Paul talking exactly in those terms? Yeah. So we're just looking at it from the underside, but it's the same exact principle. Okay, yeah, another hand. Do people always reach for the easy way, for the sinful way? For is that is that a second nature? I think it's a first nature. Yeah, I mean, well, in the, yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, Just yeah. I mean, a second a nature in the sense, yeah, definitionally, that the fallen human flesh always looks for what is easy and what is comfortable, and um, and and that's just it, you know. But I think I also think though that um, it's more complicated than that. It's more complicated than that. I mean, I th- even if you think of it vocationally, your job as a mother, you don't want to invite your children into 
pain and suffering. You do everything you can to stop it, right? Maybe to a fault. Um, maybe to a fault. But God's going to have his way yeah. anyway. Yeah. And so it is a, it's a very complicated kind of calculus there. And, and even there in parenting, just to add another layer of complication, maybe this is especially, no, I think it's both. Both mom and dad do this. Maybe dad a little bit more. I don't know. You let the kid get hurt within a certain scope, right? You know what I mean? It's like, I want to make sure he doesn't die, but I'm going to go ahead and let him learn a lesson, you know, climb up the stairs. I'll maybe let you fall down one before I catch you. <laughs> you know, teach you, hey, you got to hold on to the rail or not go up the stairs, whatever, you know. So, yeah, I think that there's ways that we ourselves do this. It's a complicated kind of calculus. And there are other ways in which it becomes even more profoundly complicated. But I think, so... I think the best we can do here is that as we're wrestling through suffering, as we're wrestling through affliction and cross, we always go right when we make that the opportunity and the call to prayer. The opportunity for prayer, the call to prayer. So, yeah, by nature, we're always looking for the easy way out. Because if the easy way out, again, by our fallen flesh, if we can just have it the easy way, we don't need who? God. That's what we all want. By nature, we want everything to go perfect without God. But maybe he cares for us. That's the fallen man's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the fallen man's In a more profound way when we're in, in dire straits. Yeah, I mean, imagine if God knew that the only thing that would truly fulfill a human being, because he made that human being, was himself. What if God knew that the only way that you are going to be completely fulfilled is in him? But you envision, because we're all fallen, we envision that paradise is having everything we need apart from God. What would God's response? These people don't even know. They're so blind as to... They're pursuing, effectively, hell. Because they're searching for... There's, there's that sort of, to borrow a, a paraphrase of Augustine, it's just for ease of use here. They're pursuing that... To, they're trying to fill that God-shaped recess, that God-shaped hole within their soul... And they can't do it, and they think they're doing it, but they're only becoming more and more desperate, more and more sad, more and more like the things they worship, which are blind, deaf, dumb, lifeless, etc. Okay. And so what God wants to do then is take those things away. Break those things down. Cause us through affliction to turn to him that we may be healed, but ultimately that we may be fulfilled by him, because that's how we were made. So again, then, this is, this is yet another facet of these sufferings. So as we go through it as a Christian, it's profoundly complicated and complex and can be filled with uh, all kinds of different um, things that are true and false and right and wrong the admonition is that we entrust ourselves to the Father, knowing his good purposes for us, and then that we wrestle with him through the afflictions in prayer. So you remember when Jacob wrestles with God, and then God gives him the name Israel, and Israel literally means one who wrestles with God, and that name Israel doesn't go away because all who were true Israel were those who believed in Christ. And guess what? The same is true today, that all true Israel are those who believe in Christ. This is the teaching of St. Paul in the New Testament. And so if we are Israel, and Israel means to wrestle with God, guess what we're going to be doing? A lot of wrestling with God. And that's really what suffering does, is, you know, suffering makes it so you have to call out to him, and then you call out to him, and the wrestling match begins. Is this because of my sin? Is this not because of my sin? Is this wise or not wise? Is this for me or for others? Is there ever an end to this? 
Are you just or not just? How long, O Lord? Lord, what are you doing? You're not acting in accord with your character. All of these types of emotions and expressions are readily found in the Psalms, the playbook of wrestling with God. And again, that just shows us that now is the time to wrestle with God, the time to rest with God is to come. So don't be afraid of the wrestling with God. That's precisely what this time period is for. But we won't strive with him nor he with us forever. And I know we're all looking forward to that. But then count the season, count the time for what it is. Bear your cross. Struggle. Wrestle. Jesus even uses this language for our path into heaven. It's the Greek word from which we get the word agonize. Agonize on your way to heaven. We're so afraid of works righteousness creeping in somewhere that we turn a blind eye to this, I think, frankly, more common tradition in the scriptures, which is just relating to the experience of it. I mean, nail down in your heart, mind, and soul that we're not justified by our works and we don't get into heaven by our works. Got it? Good. I think we all got it. Okay, now rejoice in and embrace in the full riches of the teachings of our Lord, the man of sorrows, the crucified one, and all his scriptures that tell us plainly that our journey to heaven is one of agonizing and one of endurance and one of struggling and strife and wrestling and boxing and running a marathon. Those are what the scriptures themselves use for our journey into heaven. Okay, any other thoughts? Next week then, we go into the section on the mouth, wise ways and foolish ways of using it. The Lord be with you.